0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Good evening and welcome. Tonight we are joined by criminologists Drs. Helen Rand and Stacey Banwell of the University of Greenwich to discuss approaches to teaching feminist theory in the seminar room. So come along with us as we explore academic feminisms and their meanings, framing difficult topics and designing The feminist seminar room.
0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com/slash lsw/slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. You find me this week on the other side of a surprisingly work-free half-term holiday. And it's felt like a pleasantly lengthy one, in large part, I think, because our Year 11 mock exam season began a couple of weeks before the holiday. So this meant, mercifully, that the IGCSE English marking was, by and large, completed while the whole year group was sitting in the exam hall, focusing on their other subjects. There were a couple of late finishes in the week and on a Saturday afternoon, but the four members of the department ploughed through the stack of answers to English Language Paper 1, English Language Paper 2 and English Literature in about a week. We find the best way of doing this is to mark a section each from a single paper for the whole cohort so that you can build up a marking momentum as you internalise the Mark Scheme features. The internal moderation process then becomes much quicker and easier as colleagues can adjust their marking standard if necessary after the first batch of five to ten marked answers. I have seen some questions floating around about how much annotation should go onto an examination script. We generally do very little in-text correction unless a serious error arises and close the script with a couple of brief comments, a percentage and a grade. A summary of the key strengths and weaknesses of the cohort's performance is then presented in class by teachers. Serious individual misconceptions are then explored on a one-to-one basis. I think this strikes the right balance between feedback, speed and identifying areas for future development. As someone else rightly pointed out online this week too, in English literature, past papers are, by definition, never going to come up again and rarely repeat poems from taught anthologies that have already been examined. One can spend too much time analyzing past paper questions as though like tea leaves in an early black and white talkie, they might somehow presage the future. We have a smaller than average cohort of 65 students this year, so marking consumed somewhere between seven and seven and a half hours at about seven minutes per paper Which rises to nearly 11 hours at 10 minutes per paper. So the department probably spent about 36 hours marking exam answers in the final week between the teaching of years 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 and 13. Inevitably, however, there were still the one or two students who, bumping into you in the lunch queue, were curious to know how they had done in the exam they had sat on the previous afternoon because other departments that shall remain nameless had already given everyone their marks back. I have yet to discover the perfect approach to exam marking. I personally find using a stopwatch and marking in batches of 10 candidates organised alphabetically to be quite useful psychologically. I then schedule these batches out across the day and complete them in a small number of different locations beyond my classroom, like the library, the staff common room and the silent study room. I sometimes listened to some good minimalist music to block out other distractions, but couldn't find my headphones this time. So went cold turkey on reading the various descriptions, narratives, and articles that students were asked to write. There were some nicely written and intelligently plotted pieces among this year's answers, but our students, like those up and down the country, no doubt, aren't quite the finished article yet. So my half-term mark load this holiday has been confined to double marking the four A-level literature NEA essays that I couldn't quite manage before the break, alongside checking exam entries and placing our new mid-year starters into English sets. Instead of work, I spent some much-needed time with the family, including an evening away in a stormy Whitby amid the goggles and calculating machines of the spring steampunk weekend, tours of various North Yorkshire eateries, a trip to our favourite Birds of Prey centre, where my daughter has adopted a small burrowing owl called Denali. Between the various DIY jobs, I also managed to catch up with some governor training and monitoring business and watch my local non-league football team, the mighty Pickering Town, continue their valiant struggle to avoid relegation from Tool Station, Northern County's East Premier Division seeing no fewer than 13 goals in the process. But now I'm back in the classroom and all systems are go as the year 11 speaking and listening tests come hurtling towards us and year 13 mock exams begin. Tonight's show, however, sees us shift focus from the secondary school exam hall to the university seminar room and the ways in which feminist theory might be explored in this space. So we'll be asking, what we might mean by feminist discourse in the university teaching environment, what does it look and sound like in the social sciences, and with a particular focus on the teaching of criminology, how does it shape our views of the relationship between women and crime? So I'm pleased to say we are joined by Drs. Helen Rand and Stacey Banwell, who will share with us some of their experiences of teaching feminist theory and of designing a feminist seminar room that might facilitate effective academic discussion of feminist concerns. Helen Rand is senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Greenwich. Her research interests lie at the intersection of the law and gender and sexualities. Her PhD focused on how the internet transformed the organisation of sex work in the UK. She teaches undergraduates and postgraduates at the University of Greenwich her modules include a foundation course for first years, a final year module, women, crime, justice and power, and a postgraduate module on feminist criminological research. Her teaching is informed by feminist principles. She is also a governor of a sixth form college in East London. And I'm delighted to say that Helen joins us on the line now. <laughs> on Teachers Talk Radio
2: Hello, hi, nice to be here today, Christopher. Thanks for inviting us along.
1: Thank you, we can hear you loud and clear. Wonderful. (laughs) I'm also pleased to introduce Helen's colleague, Dr. Stacey Banwell, who is Associate Professor of criminology at the University of Greenwich. Stacey has over 16 years experience of research-informed teaching at undergraduate and postgraduate levels on the topics of gender-based violence during war and armed conflict. She has published extensively on the topics of gender-based violence, the law and sexual violence, and multi-species reproductive violence. Stacey is the programme leader of the MSc Criminology, Gender and Sexualities course, and the postgraduate academic portfolio lead for law and criminology. Hello, Stacey. It's great to have you on the show with us this evening.
3: Hi, Christopher. And hi, Helen. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here.
1: Thank you. Perhaps we can begin then, Helen, by considering what we might mean by feminisms in the context of university teaching before moving on later to a discussion around how they might be explored in practical terms. It's now 40 years since the publication of Bell Hooks' book, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. So what do we understand by academic feminisms and their meanings in the 21st century?
2: Thank you, Christopher, that question. Um, I, I'm really glad you brought Bell Hooks into the conversation there. She's been very influential in how I see myself as a feminist teacher and researcher. I find her work continues to be highly accessible and it's always struck me with her work, which you don't see in all feminism, but a real kindness and inclusion um, in how we should see and practise feminism. So for instance, when I was thinking about this podcast, I wanted to share a little bit about my research. So I was researching men who purchased purchase sex. Um, It's quite a complicated topic, and I was finding it quite difficult to sort of analyse masculinities in a non-judgmental way. And I think it can be too easy to fall into a kind of man-hating space, and certainly that's something we can be accused of as feminists as well. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. But it's easy to do it when you're talking and researching about something that really is impacted by these patriarchal power structures, and so it's complex and difficult to get your head around that. But what I thought was really helpful with Bell Hooks is actually, and I'm going to quote her here, she challenges these ideas um, about the kind of, and I'm saying it in inverted commas, obviously man-hating, because it's not something I occur to agree with. But she says, "It's, it's a false fiction of feminism that we women can find our power in a world without men, in a world where we deny our connections to men. We claim our power fully only when we embrace that. My my screen just went uh, blank as I was talking. When we speak the truth that we need men in our lives, that men are in our lives whether we want them to be or not, that we need men to challenge patriarchy, that we need men to change. And I think that just is really helpful and certainly something that Stacey and I bring to our classes because we have a mixed cohort and we do find our our courses do tend to attract more women than men. But actually, it's really important for them to feel included and part of this discussion. So kind of just going back to your question a little bit, well, how has this informed my teaching? It's given me a much more sympathetic approach. And I think it's really important to recognise that we all, from my understanding of the world, we're all oppressed by this patriarchal order. And feminism wants to challenge that patriarchal order and change it. Um, Her books were written in the 90s and she's written three really interesting books on um, teaching, which I really recommend to your listeners. Teaching to Transgress, Teaching Critical Thinking and Teaching Community. And all three of these books, I think, are really amazing and very instructive to my teaching practice. Um, She's a prolific writer and central to her academic work was certainly teaching. And that's not always the case in further education. Sometimes you might find, I mean, higher education, you might find that people are much more focused on their research. And, And she admits herself her first love is writing, but actually, Um, And I really agree with her and here, and inspired by this, that the idea that the classroom remains the most radical space of possibility within the academy. And certainly myself, and I think Stacey would agree with me, we see our jobs as political. We see our jobs as very important in that way, in terms of um, influencing young people's way of being, opening young people's minds to the way of the world
1: an interesting way about thinking about mm-hmm. classrooms actually I don't think that's normally the first thought that comes <laughs> into many people's heads about classrooms that they are kind of radical spaces unless they're particularly writing a, a rant for a particular <laughs> tabloid newspaper there's a sense that often classrooms are quite conventional traditional or certainly a perception of them being so.
2: That's really interesting that you say that, because I think actually, obviously, I mean, HE has changed phenomenally in the UK. So her books were being written 20 years ago, and that was when I was an undergraduate. And at the time, I mean, it, it was free to go to university. Um, and the expansion of education has really changed things in lots of great ways, but also in perhaps more problematic ways. So for example, we have a much more diverse student body now from a much more diverse background. We often teach students who are first generation coming to university in a way we wouldn't have seen 20 years ago as commonly as we do now but also that means classes are perhaps twice as big as they used to be Um, and I think as well students have a slightly different relationship with the university setting because they're paying it does change that somewhat I think but Saying all that, I still think we've got this opportunity where students are going to study with us for three years, and it's a real chance to build community and for them to be in spaces where they're not with this diverse body that they're not going to be with necessarily again in their lives. Um, Teach young people to have that critical mind, to open their eyes and their hearts to the world around them, listen to one another, listen to their experiences and validate their experiences within the classroom. And I think as well, we ask the students to really push the boundaries of what's acceptable in this world and give them some hope that actually perhaps we can have a different future
1: so at Greenwich then do feminisms constitute core elements of undergraduate syllabuses or do they represent optional modules intended to cultivate a specialism
2: well Christopher I'm super lucky with my department we have a very strong feminist uh, theoretical grounding and a group of wonderful um scholars that I work with as well so it certainly is embedded throughout our modules so the foundational module I taught we um talk uh, mainstream criminological theories, but I would certainly critique them, not just uh, from a feminist perspective, but also thinking about queer theory and race critical race theories as well I think it's so important when we're talking about crime and punishment we can't ignore these other intersections with that um, and this threads through I think my colleague uh, Ella Simpson was here and she teaches peniology and certainly they um, would have that feminist undertone to their work as well Madeline Petrillo talks about gender-informed responses to crime and punishment and we have other theory-based modules throughout which will always come back to this more critical um, engagement with chronological theories um, as well. But the course that Stacey and I teach on is a final optional module. So they're in their final year. Um, It's a really wonderful module. module. It's Stacey's module, um, and I've been very lucky to work with her on it for the last two years. Um, It's Women, Crime, Justice and Power. Students opt to do this. Um, And quite often what we find is students may carry on and take part in our master's course, um, which is called Criminology, Gender and Sexuality. It's it's the only one like it in the country. And I thought perhaps Stacey might want to say something here, because it's her um msc that she's designed and it's just a brilliant msc and it might be interesting for her to say a bit more about that
1: thanks Helen. yeah stacy what kind of thoughts did you have about how you thread feminism through your course or whether you do something different other than that
3: Well, I think, um, as Helen said, it's the Women, Power, Crime and Justice module that we teach is a a very popular one. And it has been since I started. it. I think it's in 2008. Um, So it's been going for a long time. And I think what we found from student feedback at the end of that module was that they just wanted more. Um, and what we do on the module, as, as Helen has sort of alluded to in her bit, we obviously it's called Women, Power, Crime and Justice, so we, we focus a lot on women. But I think students were really interested to explore gender and to think about the experiences of men as well, because obviously on the module, we talk a lot about violence against women so we're looking at uh, male perpetrators and I think what they wanted going forward was something that wasn't just focused on women it was still using a feminist lens but that we were broadening it out to look at gender and so we created this uh, MSC that Ellen has just mentioned, the Criminology, Gender and Sexualities, that explores those issues further. So there is a module on there called Feminist Criminological Research, which is the foundation of the MSC, where we look at the feminist critique of mainstream criminology and we look at various ways in which uh, feminists have conducted research on the subjects of gender and sexualities but it's a really good pipeline for students who've done the women power crime and justice module who want a bit more but want to to look at gender as well as kind of thinking about women so yeah it's been a great uh, opportunity for those students to stay at Greenwich and pursue their studies a bit further
1: and how do young undergraduates approach such feminisms Stacey?
3: I think as um
2: I'm just might come in here if that's all right, but I, it's a really interesting one about uh where it's a mixed response, Christopher you can imagine I think um one thing that troubles me potentially though is I wonder if the students that don't agree or find feminism confronting or for whatever reason aren't kind of engaged with it, I wonder that they perhaps don't attend. So unlike school, we can't force people to attend lectures and seminars. And I'm always curious if perhaps those that don't attend are the ones that perhaps find the topics more uncomfortable and just vote on their feet as it were. So I don't know, but that said, it is mixed. I've also been told by students, and we're going to talk about this a bit more in a moment, but I've done some um, pedagogical research with some students and they've been talking to me about actually how transformative some of the work we do with them has been. Certainly, um, I just did this this week, but also from last year, we have discussions around abortions and many students have been able to share their experiences of abortions of their own, family members um, or friends. And I think it's one of them remember me, telling me that actually it really, it it located her personal choice into a wider political experience and for her that was actually quite a liberating place it took a lot of the guilt out and the shame that she had been experiencing and if i'm honest christopher i get one comment like that a year i feel like i've really done my job
1: yeah particularly as i wonder whether the student ever could have conceived about having that experience when they signed up on the first day Mm.
2: yeah quite when they start as first years to then as in their final year being able to talk in this open space about something so deeply personal and often stigmatizing
1: certainly stacy did you have any thoughts on how young undergraduates approach the feminist theory that you're presenting to them
3: I mean no not, not i don't have much to add to what helen has already said there really i mean i've I, myself have had similar situations where students interestingly have not attended a session because they had thought that they would find it difficult but then have come along and then like with helen have then reached out afterwards uh to sort of talk about how it has been uh it has transformed them and again it's this idea of the personal is political that, that they have found mm. that this very personal experience they've been able to see that it forms part of uh, part of their feminist politics so i think and interestingly throughout the years that I've taught the module we always have men on the module and I think it's really interesting particularly and we're going to talk about this a bit later when we get to the subject of women abused women who kill their abusive partners and it's very interesting again seeing how some of the male students will come to those sessions with certain ideas around that topic but will come away and and have a very different idea so that's particularly interesting to see how when we're talking about those sorts of topics uh, the impact that can have on men and their approach to feminisms and as i'm sure helen may talk about later we at the start of the module we do ask students to write down one how they would define feminism but also whether or not they consider themselves to be feminists and then we we reappraise that at the end of the module to see whether anything has changed once we've covered both uh, terms of the module so it's really interesting
1: yeah there's certainly one very political space that many of your undergraduates will be exposed to before they join you which is of course social media It's a very kind of blinkered mm political space quite often. What assumptions do you find yourselves having to challenge or re-examine as a consequence of Mm. delivering feminist theory through your criminologicals?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You bring in social media and certainly that's been a a huge change for the generation, isn't it? They're they're very much bombarded by short clickbait on TikTok and what have you. We have um, ourselves, though, as well, um, addressed and challenged our ideas about gender and how we might speak about gender. We've been quite influenced by Judith Butler's work and her queer theory that challenges this kind of given binary sex idea. And actually we tried to embrace that there is multiple manifestations of gender. And I think it's important, one of the things we share with the students when we talk about this is there's an amazing uh, map where you can see prior to the colonial project that actually in many cultures, there were third genders that this idea of perhaps a two spirit in, um, in indigenous populations in Canada, certainly places in Asia as well, in Buddhism, this idea of the third gender. So we bring this in in an intersectional way and try to move it out of perhaps the um, sometimes very reductive and essentialist arguments that we see on things like Twitter. So we try to see this much more intersectionally thinking about colonialism, location, and other power structures, not just around gender actually. And I think for us as well, thinking about how gender is spoken about is really key to us as feminist teachers because we want our space to be inclusive and we don't want any students to feel left out or excluded. So we have adapted our language uh, to be more inclusive inclusive of non-binary folk and allow space for transgender experiences in the things that we're addressing. We don't wanna be distracted by perhaps these Twitter discussions and this kind of cancel culture that students sometimes talk about. And actually what we're saying, we want this to be a safer space for all our students and we do what we can for that to happen. And that's about being careful with our language in a kind of postmodern way.
1: Do you notice any differences between your British-based students and your international students on such assumptions?
2: That's really interesting. I Not necessarily. I think sometimes it probably depends on the individual, but certainly, you know, Christopher just made me think this week when we were talking about, um it was actually the previous we talked about infanticide and the international students were much more able to understand the desperate situation some people can be in in a way and I guess it's reflective of access to healthcare. it's reflective of access to abortions and contraception in a way that perhaps some of our British students can't really fathom how tricky life can be for some people so sometimes maybe and in, I think the other thing to bear in mind is not perhaps about where people are from but perhaps sometimes religious ideas, but even that, my stereotypes are often blown out of the water actually, where I think perhaps someone's gonna be more conservative with a small C and actually is incredibly inclusive and thoughtful and understanding and empathetic with other people's experiences.
1: That's interesting to hear. Um, I was wondering too, if you had noticed any changes over the past five, six seven years because of course the relationships and sexual education curriculum has changed in British secondary schools certainly in England and whether you'd noticed any of the fruits Mm. of that coming to development in the discussions that your undergraduates are having
2: I think Stacey has actually Stacey do you want to pick up on that
3: yes yes so I was just looking actually over some of the assessment questions, for example, that we have on the module. And so one of the things that we have done, and this goes back to what you're saying, Christopher, about social media. One of the things that when we talk to students about their understanding and definition of feminism, one of the things that we've had to start thinking about our discussions around post feminism, you know, are we in a post feminist state, popular feminism, and hashtag feminism? And so one of the essay questions that we have uh, is hashtag feminism, activism, or slacktivism? And we ask students to critically discuss this uh, statement in relation to popular feminism and campaigns to end violence against women and girls. So we have seen that changes in views on feminism the different feminist perspectives that we are engaging with then informs the assessment and feedback that uh, sorry the, the, the assessments that we give to students and it also it's quite interesting so one of the things in terms of thinking about post-feminism and popular feminism, I, when I teach this with students, try to draw on sort of recent cases. So what I do in this particular example is draw on the case of Rihanna, who was assaulted by Chris Brown, and how we've got some really interesting feminist articles that talk about that in the context of post-feminism and how that informs people's responses to women who have been victims of violence in the context of these ideas of, you know, neoliberalism, this idea that women are these free choosing, autonomous individuals, that they have this power that they didn't have before, and how that can really inform our understanding of, yes, women who have been victimised at the hands of men. So we see it in terms of the case studies that we use and how we understand them. But I think particularly, you know, it's interesting to me because I have designed the essay questions for this module since, Uh, 2008, how we've then had to incorporate that into, into the assessment.
1: In terms of preparing students when they make that transition from secondary school and sixth form education into universities, has there been any significant movement towards reacquainting sixth form students with the connection between what they're doing at A level potentially, and what they're going to be doing at degree level. Are you able to get into schools from time to time and explore these ideas with ambitious sixth form students?
2: I certainly am. Um, is my role as a governor. It was interesting. You uh, said that in my bio, um, it's something I would be liking to do much more and i um, university of Greenwich is a local university to where I live. It's local to where I'm a governor as well. I think I would like to be more involved with how, Sixth Form Colleges, schools are communicating about university. Um, I think the big thing that we still see with our students, and so we don't go into schools particularly, I think other departments in our university will be doing that. What I think is this big shift to being an independent learner. So we are very much more hands off and I get the impression from the Sixth Form College I'm engaged with anyway, is that it's much more hands on. And guiding students through their qualifications, so I think for some of our students that can be a bit of a stark uh, reality. Of here's the work, get on with it. We'll see you next week. I'd be interested to know what you think about that, Christopher. Is that reflective of how the difference might be? Um,
1: I think it could be. I mean, different ways. Different schools do things in different ways with their own mm, students, depending on mm. their cohorts and things. I just wonder how much exposure many of your English-based students would have had to feminist theory before they arrive at your course. I mean, it features quite heavily in the A-level English literature programme I teach. I know it appears on the government and politics syllabus and some of the religious studies syllabuses. But beyond that, I wonder where it's really being explored that's really
2: interesting because I have seen the sociology syllabus. And certainly, I think one thing I have noticed about the sociology syllabus, it's very um, kind of feminism in a typology. So we talk about liberal feminism, we talk about radical feminism, Marxist feminism. And one of the things we're talking about when we get to it is actually much more nuanced and people don't fit into these neat categories. So I think that's quite an interesting thing. And I think you can again tell me if you're wrong but if i'm wrong here about a level syllabus but we're not necessarily looking for the right answer we're looking for complexities in what they're writing
3: yes
1: yeah i think there's some space for complexity too at a level so yes i'm sure be, much much more than they used to be it used to be a lot more cut and dried well that's been really good in terms of establishing the basics for how students engage with feminism in your classes and the nature of the courses that you offer seems so much depends really on where the student's starting point is before they join you and on a range of different cultural elements too that have kind of made them into the people they are before they come to you. Um, Mm. In the next section of the show we'll consider how you handle some of the difficult topics that arise when you're applying feminist theory to some of criminology's more challenging subject
4: matter, if that's okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Sounds good.
4: And we'll be right back after this. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR two three two four for twenty percent off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
5: Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel.
6: The Guardian features an analysis of the impact COVID and austerity had on children in England. The article focuses on four key areas and contains some deeply concerning data. In terms of child poverty, 4.2 million children are in relative poverty and young people experiencing destitution has tripled over the past three years. According to researchers, this means children facing such hardships may go without proper clothes or share a bed with a sibling. But it also means missing out on family outings and school trips. These children are also more likely to be affected by cuts to local amenities, including libraries, parks and youth clubs, further reducing life opportunities. Schools in early years have struggled since the pandemic. Issues with children not meeting developmental milestones in EYFS and poor attendance and deteriorating behaviours are affecting primary and secondary age pupils. This, alongside crumbling school buildings, recruitment and retention difficulties, and soaring demand for SEND services, continues to impact pupils, particularly the disadvantaged. Health is also having a huge impact on outcomes. Declining services means problems are storing up for the future, particularly in the field of mental health. Record numbers of young people are being referred, 1.4 million in 2022 in England alone. In primary, two in five children in England leave primary school overweight, putting them at risk of diabetes, heart disease and other issues for later in life. Child protection concerns are also on the increase. In 2023, 83,840 children were looked after, a steady increase year on year from 64,460 in 2010. Teenagers are now the fastest growing group of looked after children with limited services in place to support. In response to the bleak statistics, many have called for a national plan for childhood to transform the life chances of many described as the left behind. This term was used by the Association of Directors of Children's Services and the organisation said it was the narrow view of government to focus on a recovery plan just for education. When they should have looked at a recovery plan for childhood, as this would have addressed wider well-being issues. The organisation also called for a Department for Children to coordinate policy across government areas, not just education. A government spokesperson responded to the issues raised by highlighting recent changes to childcare and an increase in educational standards. In Scotland, teachers have been speaking to BBC News about what they describe as rising pupil violence. In Aberdeen, staff say some fear for their safety and are scared to go to work. The council is being called upon by unions to intervene, but it says it's already trying to support staff and address the underlying causes of poor behaviour. The EIS union surveyed 800 members in Aberdeen and almost half reported violent pupil behaviour in school every day and more than a third said they had been physically assaulted. The problem is reported in both secondary and primary schools. The council said any misbehaviour was unacceptable and that it was considering all feedback from staff saying, everyone who visits and uses a school is entitled to a safe, peaceful, respectful environment. In another story from the BBC, this time from Bristol, the focus is on school children being failed as permanent exclusion rates rose. More than twice as many children in the city were permanently excluded last year compared to the past two years. There are now plans to offer early intervention in primary schools, so serious issues can be resolved sooner. But some point to wider concerns which also need to be addressed if things are to change. Many media outlets have also reported on the new guidance on the use of mobile phones issued to schools in England. The guidance received mixed reviews, with some welcoming the clarity, whilst others described it as a non-policy for a non-issue. Many schools already have policies in place to deal with this. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan told BBC Breakfast the guidance aimed to offer consistency and that there is no place for mobile phones in our schools all the way through the school day. The government announcement comes shortly after Esther Jai, mother of murdered Brianna Jai, called for changes to the law to stop children accessing social media. There are currently no complete bans on mobile phones in schools in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, where education decisions are devolved from the UK. Finally, the writer of BBC Three's comedy drama Borders gave an interview on education and opportunity in code switching. The show about five black teens with scholarships to an elite boarding school focuses on issues such as our access to opportunity and the reality of feeling out of place at times. Daniel Lawrence Taylor used some of his own experiences at university to write as well as speaking to friends who attended private schools. He says code switching, changing accent, tone of voice and mannerisms depending on where or who a person may be with was an important thing to highlight as many black people feel they have to code switch when entering majority white spaces. Taylor also says he wanted to show that whilst there may be benefits to attending academic institutions like the one in the show, there are challenges too, including making sure the environment is safe enough for those from different backgrounds to really take advantage and use the opportunity to its fullest. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
1: Welcome back to our show on Approaching Feminist Theory in the Criminology Seminar Room with Drs Stacey Banwell and Helen Rand of the University of Greenwich. In the first section of the show, we explored some of the assumptions that need to be examined when undergraduates begin to engage with feminist perspectives on the world. Now I'd like us to move on to some of the ways in which feminist theory can help widen academic debates about the relationship between women and crime. So Stacey, coming to you. Criminology is obviously a subject that requires students to engage with some difficult content. How is this truth addressed in teaching and what role, if any, do trigger warnings play in framing lectures and seminars?
3: Thanks for that question, Christopher. It uh, it might just be worth noting that this module that we're referring to, Women, Power, Crime and Justice, in the first half of the module, we focus exclusively on violence against women and girls. And then in the second half of the module, we focus on women as perpetrators of violence. So we look at women who kill, we look at women who use sexual violence. So as you can imagine, throughout the module, we are dealing with difficult topics. And what we we do use trigger warnings, But I think because of the description of the module, which we share with students at the outset, we may not do this every single week. What we do, we use the virtual learning environment to notify students ahead of class, what we might be asking them to read, what will be in the lecture slides for that week. So we do give students that sort of heads up if you like, the the class runs on a Friday so we often will contact students at the beginning of the week just to give them a sense of what we're going to be addressing what we're asking them to read and as I say what will be in the, the lecture slides we also have so for example recently I was teaching a session on the sexual violence and abuse that took place at Abu Ghraib, I was looking at women's involvement in that and what I do is I make sure that we have an agreement amongst the students about what we're going to look at in the classroom. So if I'm ever going to show any images of violence, we often record our sessions so they're available for students who may not be able to attend. I tend to only show an images or of or, or those sort of uh, that, that kind of representation of violence with students that are in the room. I don't particularly like having those sorts of things available on the virtual learning environment for students just to access without being in a sort of a safe space, if you like, for us to un- unpack what we're looking at. So we yes, we do use trigger warnings. We do have these agreements where certain content we will only deliver in the classroom space. We won't just have it available for students to access uh, on an individual level. What I've also done in the module, and this is based on student feedback that I received, that students found that, again, given what I've just described in terms of the module, that it's quite heavy. And students said, you know, would it be possible to try and focus on, on some positive elements in relation to women? So what we did do for a while is we had a kind of good news stories segments if you like so each week we would come in with a positive story around particularly in the first term where we're looking at violence against women and girls where we would for example look at uh, an instance where perhaps there'd been a positive change in access to to reproductive health so that was something that we did to try and help with that Uh, and since helen has been on the module we have also introduced a section where we talk to students about things that we do to help with our mental health. So we talk about things that we enjoy doing that can help deal with some of the topics that we're dealing with.
1: Thank you. That's a really good answer to that question, I think. There is a sense, isn't there, that we see it particularly in the professional world of criminal investigation, where you do need often some kind of mental release from some of the stuff that you're involved in investigating.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and that is and a lot of that. Helen, I don't know if you want to jump in here, but that was something I think you introduced last year, wasn't it, on the module in terms of just sharing with the students some of the things that you do just to help, you know, sort of decompress after some of the things that we look at. Yeah,
2: for sure. And actually, I think it's really rooted in black feminism, actually, to think about self-care. It's so important, isn't it? And certainly something I've learned again from reading Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks. It's like we, we have to, it's political act, and I really want to instill that in the students that part of our feminism needs to be looking after ourselves.
3: Yes, agreed.
1: <laughs> so Stacey, what does a feminist lens bring to developing your students' understanding of the female criminal and of the factors that affect female criminality?
3: Great, thanks for that question, Christopher. So I thought it might be helpful to start by just sort of briefly outlining what the feminist critique is of mainstream criminology before then considering what feminist criminology has had to offer the discipline. And, and just to sort of say here that one of the things that we do do with the students is to critique whether, you know, what what has feminist criminology had to offer? Because often there's been quite the scathing attack of mainstream criminology but, you but ha- know, has feminist criminology been able to move the discipline forward? So let's just start with some of these critiques. So um, in her seminal work, Women, Crime and Criminology, Carol Smart, and this was written in 1976, says that virtually all of the early work that we had around female fe- offenders provides a very uh, uncritical attitude towards sexual stereotypes of women and girls. And here I'm quoting her, uh, confirming the biologically determined inferior status of women. So despite the rare rare occasions, Carol Smart goes on, she said these studies refer to women in terms of their biological impulses and hormonal imbalance or in terms of their domesticity, maternal instinct and in terms of their passivity. And I think this is really important because one of the things, and I was studying this for my PhD when I was reviewing the literature around uh, the feminist critique of mainstream criminology, is that at a time when criminology was sort of moving away from these really reductive ideas around women, uh, around sort of criminals generally. When we talked, when we were thinking about female criminality, it was still rooted in these kind of really reductive, sexist and kind of biological determined explanations and as a lot of writers were saying that when women were seen indeed when they were seen at all because you know criminology was very male focused they were never seen as rational or responsible human agents they were always seen as uh, neurotic compulsive and irrational so what feminist criminology was doing was arguing that you know the discipline had tended to either exclude women or they were marginalized or when they were included, they were trivialized. And so the idea was that feminist criminology wanted to include women and conduct more empirical research on women. So what we do on the module is we sort of expose students to some of this seminal work by feminist criminology, uh, feminist criminologists. And some of the work that I share with students is Pat Carlin's work. So there were two really interesting pieces of research that she conducted with women. So the first book of hers was called uh, Criminal Women in 1985. And that was a huge inspiration for my PhD research, because this book was about speaking to women. It was about their subjective understandings of their, their criminal behaviour. And it was about resisting these kind of biological, pathological, medicalized understandings of women's criminality to really kind of understand why do so you know, some women choose to commit criminal and violent acts. And I think that was the really important bit here is that it was about inscribing agency. It was about seeing women as decision makers, that they did sometimes choose violence or criminal acts as a way of uh, finding a solution to, to, to issues. And I suppose rather than seeing them as these kind of, you know, that that there was something wrong with these women, that they were sort of deviating from their natural feminine roles. What Carlin did in her work was to sort of see, okay, well, there is a purpose and there is a meaning to this. And then she wrote a follow-up book called Women, Crime and Poverty in 1988. And again, like the previous one, this was about speaking to women themselves. In this one, she speaks to career criminals. And this was uh, based on, speaking to 39 women and again this idea that they did engage in this meaningful criminal behavior that it was organized that it was kind of quite professional and that she wanted to sort of just yeah trying to challenge some of these ideas that see women as sort of finding themselves outside of conventional femininity rather what she was saying is no they they choose criminal means to remedy kind of some of the inequalities that they were that they were experiencing and then i just want to mention a cut to other really important contributions from feminist criminology and this was something that i really found in my phd research which we'll probably get to in a second and the first was this idea of blurred boundaries and here i'm thinking of the work of dahlia Mayher, who and this is this idea of seeing a complex interplay between women's victimization and their offending behavior. So there is this blurred boundary between seeing women as purely victims or seeing them as criminals, that there was this kind of complex interplay between these two things. And this then links to the other really important literature that emerged that was referred to as the pathways literature, which looks at, which looks at the unique risks and experiences of, of women and how that can lead them to to engage in criminal behaviour. And a really notable feminist scholar in this area is Richie, who looked at, provided an in-depth examination of how racial and gendered marginalisation can lead women into pathways of crime. And here she based it on the experiences of black women who had been abused by their partners, who chose to engage in acts of violence. Uh, And she identified kind of six pathways to that criminal and violent behaviour. And what we do with students is obviously we look at some of these seminal texts, but we also use the journal Feminist Criminology to look at some more current research that has been conducted around these topics of blurred boundaries and of pathways to crime.
1: Thank you. That's a really good summary of where the particular discipline sits at the moment. In terms of the students that you teach and the perceptions they might have, if perhaps they come from Western societies, they're probably likely, I would suspect, to see issues of femininity tied up with questions of fertility and motherhood, um, perhaps, in keeping with some of the older uh, interpretations of criminology. How How does the student in your room make sense of the concept of the female as a violent agent in some of the particular types of crimes you study?
3: Great. That's another great question. Thanks, Christopher. So we so some of the examples that we look at are around perverse mothering. I think Helen has also talked about abortion. We also look at women who abuse women who kill their violent partners. Helen has recently been teaching around perverse mothering and abortion, so I'll let her talk to those in a second. But I'll just sort of jump in with some of the work that I do around women who have used abused women who use violence um, in retaliation. So this is based on the research that I did for my PhD, which was a long time ago now. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to sort of really investigate how issues around agency choice and victimization feature in our understandings of women who use violence so i interviewed seven women about their use of violent behavior and of those seven women three of those women were in violent relationships uh that their, their partners use violence against them they describe themselves as victims of those violent of the you know they were they described themselves as um victimized women and what i found was interesting with these women is that they all used different types of violence against their partners. So they refer to this as, or the literature refers to it as indirect or relational violence and aggression. And what I found from women, and this was drawing on some of the feminist literature, was that women who are often at a physical disadvantage to men often have to devise alternative means of self-defense that do not sort of directly involve direct physical violence. So what I found for the women that I interviewed is that they were, it was a conscious, perhaps albeit mediated choice uh, to avoid physical violence. So the women did have agency. They did choose to respond in a kind of, it was still violence, but it was indirect. And what I was, what I found from the women is that they were being strategic. They knew that this sort of violence meant that they, it would minimize their future victimization. So perhaps their actions were not active in the sense that they didn't actively leave their partners they didn't use direct violence against their husbands but they did try to you know find alternative means to kind of make themselves feel present in those particular relationships and then I think Helen will speak to this a bit more the other issue that we've looked at is this idea of the idolization of motherhood and how interestingly when we talk about perverse mothering that can be used to obscure the violence that women engage in or when we think about the idealization of motherhood in relation to abortion, that can sometimes be used as a way to kind of uh, criminalize women and to sort of think about more punitive ways of responding to that. So Helen, do you want to sort of jump in here to talk about your recent sessions on that.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Stacy. And I think you really—we start when we're talking about perverse mothering and abortions. We talk about this cult of motherhood, and certainly, Christopher, you brought in this social media. But actually, if you look at any big celebrity now—Beyonce, the Kardashians, Rihanna—you know there's lots of these very like beautiful images of them being pregnant and big families. And actually, one of my students said to me, "It's almost like we're being forced into motherhood," which I thought was an insightful comment on her part. Um, So I think there's something around that where we're in this particular moment where it's seen as like, you can be this mother, you can have it all. But with that, we worry, um, myself and Stacey, but other feminists as well, worry that actually it hides so much the difficulties behind motherhood. Now is the biggest taboo I would suggest when we talk about women hurting their children, it's probably one of the most difficult conversations. And it's interesting when I was teaching it, Christopher, I even found it hard to make eye contact at times because actually it's just so taboo and it's, Untalked about, and and I think often our students come with that kind of common sense response. And I say that in inverted commas: oh, they're evil. They should be locked up. They must be banned from having other children. Um, which you can see why people come to the, you know, come to the sessions with these ideas. I work. I use um, Sheldon's argument around perverse mother, and this is where we get this concept from. And I think for students, it can be a bit of a light bulb moment when we think about how violence is gendered so women are more she argues women are more likely to hurt themselves bulimia anorexia self-harm tends to be the way women are violent they don't tend to be violent outside um, of themselves obviously it does happen and stacy's just referred to some cases where that does happen it does tend to still be in the home often in domestic situations quite often violence is towards a family member whether that's a partner or their children and i think for students they suddenly go oh okay, women are violent in different ways to men. And I don't mean to be too essentialist in this little binary way, but I think it's an interesting way to start thinking about it and then what sheldon argues is so actually when women do hurt their children and particularly in that first year of life it's an actual narcissistic act so they're not hurting their children as such as a separate entity they see it as an extension of themselves and it's almost the ultimate way you could hurt yourself is to hurt your children they recognize perhaps consciously or consciously it's the biggest taboo it's the worst thing they really are as bad as they thought they were because they even hurt, hurt their children so it becomes this kind of self-harm and narcissistic act. I think this is a real actual light bulb moment and we really enjoy uh, working around these ideas that Sheldon's put out there. And then, when we then start talking about abortion the the debate has shifted somewhat particularly with the u s and Roe versus Wade, which actually suggests that the fetus is separate to the woman that somehow we've got this kind of container model that the woman's the womb and the fetus is separate to the womb and we can somehow separate these two out in a very kind of western um liberal way of thinking about kind of autonomy and beings, I think really, for me, quite problematically, because for me, it's this lim- liminal time where they are one, in my opinion, and obviously in other people's opinions too. But I think with these abortion debates that we see in the US, there's this idea that they can be separate autonomous uh, beings, which goes against what Sheldon's arguing. And I think the students find that quite interesting. They're like, where have we got to with this discussion where somehow women can be seen as separate to the unborn fetus? So I think that then becomes quite an interesting discussion how we kind of frame this much more theoretically. And just to finish that point, and I'm sorry if I'm sort of talking too much about it, I find it a, it's a really interesting few weeks we spend together on this. But certainly we then problematise what Roe versus Wade has meant uh, for women in the US, but also what it means for women globally and how the influence of US politics can have um, in terms of the kind of um, global gag rule that we see where depending on the administration, and currently it's not in place, but um, pe- uh, organizations that are under U.S. aid funding can be told they're not allowed to discuss abortions with women. So we see how this has influenced globally, but also we talk about how there's states where they brought in these laws of sick weeks abortions. And I think most of the students in the class can realize how tricky that is for women. But then actually we talk about how the criminalization of pregnancy, so women being tested for drug use and then being criminalized when they have a child because they've been taking drugs, but just actually how awful this is. And just this criminalization of poor women, women that can't afford health care, can't afford to get off drugs, are then trapped in these states where you can't also get abortions, but then you're criminalised for being pregnant and having a drug addiction. So, you know, it really kind of blows up just actually How much is his handmaid's tale happening in action right now in so many states in the US, but also the impact that has globally. And somehow it shifts the discussion or the worry is it shifts the discussion into abortion not being a human right for women. And I just want to say one more thing, Christopher, I've definitely just talked a lot, but I was thinking back to um, Stacey's point about good news. And in all of this, because this is very difficult, this isn't easy for all of us to talk and think about, but we do talk about how there's a lot of resistance to the rulings in the US, and actually many judges are resisting and saying these things are still unconstitutional. So I think for me, again, thinking about bell hooks and hope, like, yes, there's laws changed. Yes, we can see perhaps things become more restrictive, but actually people resist. And actually, there's a global trend to much more liberal laws around abortion. So we just have a very sort of specific thing happening in the US right now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Roe versus Wade. I think that does much of your establishing the intersectionality of the feminist debate Mm. in very, very short measure, I suspect. Stacey, your thoughts on that?
3: Sorry, what was the question again, Christopher? Sorry, I was
1: the nature of the Roe-Wade debate, essentially establishing the multi-intersectional nature of the challenges that women face in different states, because of course the demographics of the American states radically differ depending where one is.
3: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think we there's some really interesting research that we look at on the module around combining that with different drug laws. And, mm. and we talk about it in relation to this concept of coercive pregnancy, some of the kind of complicated and multifaceted ways in which when you start introducing, as Helen was saying, you start looking at it in relation to uh, the regulation of it's, it's really interesting. And, and again, it's something, again, having taught this for so many years, just, and, and I think what I've tended to do, and I've taught this, I think Helen Helen's taught it this year, I find it really interesting to look at the kind of changes that we've seen in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And and that's mm. been interesting to sort of take students through that journey and look at the changes there, but to sort of argue that it's still, and here I love Nossef's idea.
1: So Helen, bearing in mind that the students you're teaching now in your classes are hopefully one day some of them going to be policy makers in the Mm. fields of crime and justice. What do you think they're usefully learning from feminist criminology that might help them in the future?
2: I really like that question. And certainly we know many of them will go into working within the criminal justice system and may well also be uh, influential in policy. I think what we're really, I, I, I keep going back to bell hooks, but it's about being sympathetic. It's about seeing things intersectionally. It's not seeing, are just really tr- troubling these ideas of people being evil or inherently bad, actually trying to understand people within the context in which they're operating. Um, And I think Stacy picking up on this idea of often with women, it is linked to the preparation, preparation, of, preparation of violence, sorry, and also being a victim as well, and not essentializing women in either way. So actually, yes, there may be some victims. So certainly when we see women that hurt their babies, Often it's a generational experience. They've experienced abuse themselves. So thinking about that and being sympathetic to that, and also then perhaps understand how we can break those cycles then. So I think for me, it was be thinking about context, thinking much more about social policies and really hopefully moving away from this more punitive approach that we seem to have in society right now.
1: Brilliant, thank you. It's really powerful to hear about your experiences of working with such weighty topics in the undergraduate teaching environment and to hear about the steps you take to ensure that students find the work both not overwhelming but also fascinating and useful for them in their later careers. In the final section of the show, I think we will move on to think about how the Feminist Seminar Room is consciously designed and explore some strategies that our listeners may wish to apply to their own teaching and learning contexts. And we'll be right back
4: after this. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR. 2324 for 20% off your order don't miss out visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today happy reading
5: introducing eton x from eton college a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more.
0: Live from York. This is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com lsw ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio.
1: Well, welcome back to the final part of our show on feminist pedagogy in the undergraduate seminar room with doctors Helen Rand and Stacey Banwell. Earlier, we covered the questions of what academic feminism might be and how students apply these ideas to the study of their work in criminology. I understand that you've been investigating how pedagogy might best be designed to support feminist inquiry, um, Stacey and Helen. What has this involved and what have you discovered in terms of strategies for seminar room teaching that our listeners may wish to experiment with in their own educational contexts?
3: Yes, so I've been looking at some ideas around uh, relational pedagies. And so in particular, I've been looking at this idea of how the classroom is set up so i sort of do it in relation to space so here i'm thinking about some of the stuff i've done on the msc criminology gender and sexuality so on the feminist criminological research methods module we make sure that every session we had we would redesign the 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 classroom so we didn't have that sort of traditional you know me at the front as the lecturer the students looking at me so we would try to kind of create almost like a circle so that we it, it felt like a sort of more feminist non-hierarchical space but we sort of also do it in relation to the curriculum so it wasn't just about physical space we also tried to um involve students students in curating the reading lists for that for that particular module and uh because i think that works at postgraduate level so that was quite nice to ask students to sort of think about what they would like to to read in terms of the things that we included on the reading list for that. And actually, just just to sort of pick up on two things, really, the the, the point that Helen made earlier about good news stories, but also, unfortunately, I cut out on the bit when you were talking about policy. One of the students we had on the MSc last year was a student who worked for the Ministry of Justice in their kind of gender uh, section. And interestingly, on this, because of the stuff that she had learnt on the MSC around feminist criminology, she invited me to go and do a session for the Ministry of Justice because she felt that what she had learned about feminist criminology, particularly the readings that she had done, which were based on sort of, you know, student input, she wanted to share that with her colleagues. So we had a fascinating discussion where we talked about feminist criminology and she was urging her colleagues in the Ministry of Justice to think about these readings and how they could incorporate that into their you know into their works I thought that was really fascinating and then as well as reading lists and the space we also undergraduate what we did and this was particularly useful during COVID we also have a forum where we ask students to share recommendations so this might be you know sort of readings but podcasts tv shows so we try and get students involved in what we are choosing to read. And we all read them and we all sort of comment on them. So it's this kind of shared space, so not just in terms of physical space, but in terms of the reading and learning. And this sort of fits into the principles for a feminist classroom that Helen mentioned at the beginning that we look that we try to draw on so this is Alison Phillips's notion and one of the things that we talk about here is that this is a learning not a knowing space so that we can all learn from each other and that's what we try to do that it's not just about us kind of you know just in transferring that information to students that they can feel actively involved and then one other uh, sort of suggestion or recommendation that I think would be helpful is one of the things that we try to do if we do encounter so we have been using Mentimeter to get students involved and this is kind of a a polling software that allows students to take Uh, take part anonymously, because we found that sometimes, and Helen's talked really uh, eloquently to this, the the difficulty that students can have sometimes in engaging with the topics. And we have found that they prefer to use this kind of polling software to engage anonymously. But when we did it the first year, we found that we had some very um, staunch uh, feminist views that were particularly problematic in some of the um, wording that they used about some um, men. And we had some men on the the, the module. so Helen and I wanted to sort of, you know, respond to that. And obviously we want to encourage people to take part, but we were also um, trying to ensure that students didn't use kind of unkind or discriminatory speech in using some of this software and what we tried to do. And here we're drawing on Alison Phipps's work idea of calling in rather than calling out. And so it was really helpful to use this feminist, Uh, The principles of a feminist classroom to help us respond to some of the comments that we received early on last year, this was in in terms of student comments, so. I think yeah that and the learning agreements that I have used on the module I have found have been particularly helpful in trying to navigate some of these thorny issues that we deal with on the module.
2: So yeah, I've been really lucky actually at the University of Greenwich, I was given some funds to really think about how um, we are creating these feminist spaces in our teaching. Um, And so I did a number of focus groups with a group of students, it was um, brilliant and I employed two students to be the researchers um, shout out to Melina and Ali. I think they might be listening. So thanks for the, all their hard work with it. So I think even that straight away, I'm doing research about pedagogy, but it's student-led. They were very much involved in the the, lay- the design of the project and then how we gathered this information. And I think it allows students to talk a little bit more freely and actually, I think I forget that I really am a generation different to my students and so some of the language they use, the way they speak to each other is different. And I noticed it when I read the transcripts that that actually allowed a much more fluid, natural conversation between them than perhaps had I been involved in the focus groups. So that's been a really interesting And I've been quite humbled by a lot of their responses, um, certainly reflecting what um, Stacey was saying about the layout of the room and I'm sure your listeners appreciate this too and it can be tricky can't it because you can be in quite fixed spaces in classrooms and um, it can be tricky to move furniture around but I think if you can it really does seem to have this very um, significant impact on students and if there's time I just thought I'd actually read a little quote from the focus groups Um so they say Well, you normally, when it's just in rows, I guess it's less personal because you sit with your friends and you're just in your own little section. You don't really speak to anybody else. Whereas when you're in these bigger rooms with certain table layouts, maybe you're forced to sit with people you don't really know, but you're in this open like semicircle, where it is, I don't know, I'm just trying to say, it's like there is this sense of togetherness, like a camaraderie compared to when you're sitting by yourself with your own group of friends, not talking to anybody. But in the same space, you kind of feel less anonymous in these sort of spaces. And yet I'm more able to talk as well compared to when you are sitting with your groups of friends. I just thought this was quite strong actually, how interesting these students saw this sense of togetherness, a camaraderie, even though they were less, they were perhaps a bit more exposed in my seminars. I was asking them to talk, but actually it gave them a sense of community. Um, I was, you know, it's obviously really encouraging when you've made an effort in your classrooms that then it is transferring to your students. It was great to hear that. Um, and another student said it was really good to sit in this space because it meant we were all engaging together. But then this year we've had a different cohort. And I think one of the things we have to do when we're teachers, and I'm sure yourself will know this, we have to be really Ready to develop and change our strategies based on our classroom dynamics, and they can be so starkly different. And one thing we'd notice about this year's cohort was they didn't seem to have such a community. So this last focus group I just was talking about, there they obviously had their little kind of uh, groups of friends, and they were happy to sit with them. With this group, I've seen much more individuals, um, and perhaps people not talking. They sometimes seem really shy, and I was thinking, how can I kind of break through that? You know, it it's, can be difficult to do that. So I run a focus group just this week with this cohort and actually what the researchers told me they said oh, you'd said they don't you don't seem like there's such a community and the students had also said this in the seminar group it was like actually but then they said similarly But Helen makes us get into group work we were talking to people we've never spoken to we're in our final year we've got two months left of our degree and we've never spoken to these people before so actually and I don't know if uh, not to tell other university lecturers how to do it, but I don't know how much we realise our job is about building communities within education settings. And I think it's probably different in schools where you've been with the same people since you were 11, you know each other well, but actually in a big university in central London, we have a lot of commuting students, very diverse student body. They don't necessarily know each other and actually how much in our seminars, we need to be really instrumental in building communities so we can have these, discussions so they feel safer to have these discussions so it does seem to me it's very much about building community and that and it can be as simple can't it as just changing the layout of a room
1: I think you're right it's a while since I was teaching in universities myself now I stopped teaching in universities about 2006 I think but um, when I used to have my poetry courses I used to have to run undergraduates, one of my favorite little schemes was getting students to decide where they wanted to sit in the first week and then spend the rest of the course rotating half the group oh. around one seat each. So every single session they were sitting next to somebody different. Mm-hmm. And by the time they'd done, you know, five or six cycles, it really helped stimulate the discussion in the class, um, along with also getting them to read round the room sentences by sentences sometimes, particularly Um, a way of getting everyone involved but what is the role of the seminar leader then in a feminist designed classroom Stacey?
3: I think it's exactly as Helen's been saying about this idea of creating a community and, and facilitating discussion and I think particularly given the topics that we we are exploring I mean often I find it really helpful to sort of talk to students about how I'm sort of working through it as well, that these are spaces where we are like trying to work through some of these issues and, and our, our views on some of these things. So I think it's also where appropriate, I suppose, drawing on lived experience. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, it's this idea of sharing, again, where appropriate, your own experience of trying to navigate some of these things so we can sort of have you know particular uh, views around you know rules around drinking during pregnancy and how that might then contrast with our understanding of criminalizing abortion and things like that so i think it's about sort of demonstrating to the students that we too are trying to work through these and and, and as i have done in terms of changing the assessment and the content. I do talk to students about that. I will talk to them about the fact that, you know, I have had to adapt and change what I, I have included, the terminology. So I think it's just being very present and and, and and sharing your personal experience. It goes back to what we were saying at the start about this idea, you know, this sort of uh, the feminist kind of principle of the personal is political and, and just sharing, yeah, where, where appropriate, obviously what, what your, how you're working this out. But that that's how I see the the seminar. It's a collaboration. It's about community. And it's kind of, you know, facilitating, facilitating those really difficult discussions.
1: And when some of this discussion continues in the virtual learning environment, what kind of design principles have to go into making sure that that's as safe a space online as your classroom is when you're sitting in it?
2: That's really interesting. We don't have, um, we certainly post-COVID haven't been using uh, online forums for discussions. Stacey, I don't know if you did that during COVID at all. Was that something? Yes,
3: yeah, we did. And actually, I think... it it is it's interesting because i think we had so many things that sort of came down at school and faculty level around um behavior on social media and in in online spaces and we had various because we obviously were doing a lot of teaching online we also had certain sort of, you know, not rules, that, that sounds a bit too strict, but you know, we had a kind of uh, guidelines, I guess, for students in terms of how to behave when they were on Teams and, and how to sort of engage with each other. So I think actually, when we were doing a lot more of this work online, it, it wasn't a problem at all. And actually students found it really helpful to have that forum where they could share some of their suggestions and reading. So I think in that space, it, it worked out well but again we were in a particular context where we were Mm. getting a lot of information it was a discussion that we were having you know at school level people were doing it across modules so i think it worked really well but i suspect now because we are back in the classroom as you say helen we don't tend to use it as much do we but we definitely are given a lot of support with that at university level really i would say
1: and when you're thinking about your assessments for the end of the year do you have any particular guiding principles that inform what comes out of the discussions in the seminars
2: um i just i think just thinking about assessments it's perhaps not just in terms of the what comes out of the discussions but one thing i taught at a different university and now i'm um, lucky to to be working with Stacy, And we give audio feedback, which I just has found this incredibly a revolutionary way. And I don't know if you've ever done it yourself, Christopher. So we do a recording of the feedback for the students. They get a grade as well. Um, and that's what I was doing this funding for, to explore how students find this feedback. Is it something that they find is useful? Because certainly for Stacy and me now taking part in this as well, it's a way to address power imbalances. It's a way for us to create dialogue. And I think it's been really helpful in letting students be seen. We we have a big cohort. We have perhaps 110 students on this module. Um, we don't necessarily remember all of their names at all times, but I think what they found with this audio feedback is that they felt our feedback was authentic. And what I hadn't realized until I did this research, and maybe it's naive of me, Just how emotional it is for students receiving feedback. It is incredibly personal for them, and it wasn't what I expected to see. You know, it creates anxiety, but then it can be, um, they can be dismissive of us and say, What do they even know about this subject? or it can be a real sense of personal rejection. They wanna give up, they can feel excited, they can feel validated, they can have a sense of satisfaction, but so, so emotional. It really does trigger a lot of emotional responses for students. And I think what's been good about us then giving audio feedback, and I think it picks up on what Stacey was just saying about being a seminar leader, is that we're authentic. They hear our voices. They hear that we are being genuine about what we say. So you can't say, Uh, This was a really good essay, but if you say it like, oh, it was a really good essay, they can pick up on our tones. I mean, I'm smiling. You can hear I'm smiling, right, as I'm talking there. So I think for them, hearing us um, and recognising that we have spent time and engaged in their essay, I think has been really beneficial to them. Not all of the students loved it. I've got to be honest with that. Some students wanted... um, a transcription of what we said as well but unfortunately the technology doesn't allow us to do that but i'm sure that will develop i think for some people with a learning um how they learn they want to see things written down as well um but i think overall it it creates a dialogue between the two of us um which they find beneficial and certainly i've really enjoyed giving feedback in this way
1: yeah it's interesting it's something we do do in my own school actually mm. so when our students in their top year, year 13, finish their two 1,500-word English literature essays that they're going to submit for coursework on their first draft, what we do is we have a 15-minute discussion with them, which we uh, video record in Teams, and then they've got the feedback permanently that they can listen to as much as they like when right. they go over the essays again. But of course, because it's an online meeting for 15 minutes, they can also pose their own questions and we can answer them immediately now we are restricted by our syllabus in the sense that we're not physically allowed to give them written feedback and that's been the case since 2015 Mm. since the new syllabus has come in so they find the task of doing the second draft really quite daunting because Mm. they're allowed to get one feedback opportunity which must be oral which is why we record it for them so they can listen to it as often as they want And then that's it. They hand in the real thing at the end of January, and then we mark it and it goes off to the exam board. In a sense, it's rather more like the regular meetings I used to have with my supervisor when I was a PhD Mm. student a while back. You (laughs) go slightly nervously with the stuff you've got to hand in, um, or you go with your notebook because you'd already sent it a week ahead or whatever to be read and considered. And then you'd sit there and answer the questions that were posed to <laughs> offer the great ideas you had for where you were going to go with your next chapter. But there's there's a sense of, there's some value in them experiencing that at 17, 18, because again, the big shock I've warned them about too is their experience of getting feedback on their first university mm. essay, because very few students get above 70% on their first mm, mm. attempt at a university mm, essay. Mm, How do you manage mm. that in your discussions with them?
2: Well, and I think it's interesting when I said about how emotional it is and how personal it feels to them. So I definitely tried to reassure them that it's an anonymous marking, it's not personal. Um, And I think as well, we've actually, this year, haven't we, Stacey, we've put a lot more um, guidance up on our module in terms of how to write essays, um, useful places you can go to, like um, Manchester University have an amazing phrase bank, like just little things like that, like the terminology you're perhaps using in your essays could be better. Um, so yeah so yeah i think that's been helpful to give them some more guidance initially but the way Stacey's set this module up i think has been brilliant so they get this feedback on their first essay and then they have an exam which is very similar to the essay questions we have in the first term. i mean different topics but set up the same way so they get this audio feedback and are then able to apply it in the exam setting on their essays yes, yeah. there
3: but what we also do as well, Helen, you know, if you think to the formative assessment, and this kind of brings mm. together everything we've been saying about sort of creating a community and, get, and and sort of based on what you were saying from the feedback from your students. So what we do with the formative is that we we do it in the classroom now, and we get students who are doing the same essay question to sit together, to work on their plan, to then present that to us in the seminar, and then they get feedback on that. So they get some experience of of receiving feedback from their lecturer on their uh, plan for the essay. But it also, it gives them that opportunity also of working with other students who might not necessarily be in their friendship group, but they're, they're doing the same question. They come together, they work on this plan. And I think it's a good way of them working together, creating that sense of community, community and collaboration, but also getting used to having us give them feedback on their work. And I think that's worked well. We used to do it where it was just um, they would submit a written piece and we would provide individual feedback, which we can do as well. But I think it's working well doing it in the classroom setting uh, so that they get that opportunity to work together and yeah, get used to receiving that sort of oral feedback from, mm. from us.
1: Mm-hmm. it's something we try to so we get our students to do presentations which are based on the content of what they're going to write their essays on and it's often where the most interesting discussion happens actually because mm-hmm. all of our students are writing on a different text with a different theory some of which might be feminist theory but some might be ecological theories some might be marxist theory and giving them the space to just own the room with their own PowerPoint slides that they might have designed, four or five of them if they choose to, and standing at the front while I'm sitting at the back taking notes. It's a nice nice kind of role that I think actually brings out the best in them.
3: Yeah, Mm. yeah, and we've got one final example of this, which I think maybe there's sort of mixed feelings about this, but we're doing a hackathon with this. This is the first year we're doing it with these students and they're doing that in their final week. And this is where we're getting St. Giles Trust, an organisation that, among other things, deals with trying to support women in the criminal justice system. And the idea is that their students are going to be given three cases and three challenges and the idea is that they're going to sort of help st giles come up with solutions so it's this idea of getting them to work together on real world problem solving and and there will be a question in the timed assessment on women in the criminal justice system and alternatives to women's imprisonment so we thought this would be a really interesting way to see how working on a real world problem solving exercise with an organization in the form of a hackathon will sort of help in terms of you know preparing them for that assessment, but also, you know, harnessing their employability skills. So I'm really looking forward to that because this is new for this year. So it'd be interesting to see how they work on that. I think some of them are really looking forward to it. I think some of them are slightly uh, concerned because as you say, Christopher, it will involve them. You know creating a powerpoint and then presenting their solution to these three different scenarios that they're going to be presented with in terms of the challenges faced by some of these organizations that are you know trying to deal with women in the criminal justice system
1: well it sounds like a really exciting project and one that mm-hmm. i think will inspire those students that are fortunate enough to be involved with it and in many senses that i think that sounds like the ideal way to start bringing the show to a close giving these students this sense of agency recognizing that they're working within a quite complex critical environment that requires them to bring very specific solutions to very specific problems um Thanks. helen is there anything else you wanted to say on that before we conclude
2: no i've just uh, really enjoyed having this conversation with you christopher and with stacy thank you so much
1: Well, thank you both for sharing your experiences and ideas this evening. I mean, I've learned so much from our discussion about the role feminist theory plays in a deeper understanding of so many of the problems that occupy social scientists and about the ways in which you were bringing these to the attention of the next generation of researchers. And it sounds like from the uh, description of this project that they're gonna go out into the world and make a real difference. And I think that's all credit to you and to the university.
3: Thanks Christopher, <laughs> thank it's you. hard to respond to that, <laughs> isn't it, you don't know quite know it. I know, say. that's very nice of you. <laughs>
1: I'll take it. But it's also, also been fascinating to hear about how you design the seminar room experience actually, so that a feminist pedagogy can be something that's felt and understood in the conversations upon which so much undergraduate learning when it's done well depends. So thank you very much for your contributions this evening and for finding the time to
4: speak to us tonight.
3: Thank you Christopher, thanks Helen yeah thank you
4: thank you very much this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr2324 for 20 percent off your order don't miss out Visit JohncatBookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
5: Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more.
1: So dear listener, this brings us to the end of another Sunday Late Show. I hope you found this evening's uh, programme as illuminating as I did. Thanks again to Dr Stacey Banwell and Dr Helen Rand for their thoughts on feminism, criminology and undergraduate pedagogy. And thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows that are coming up this week. We have a number of new hosts continuing to make their debuts, so look up the schedule on the website and give them a listen if you can. I'm sure they'd appreciate your support and in-show text messages. Lucy Newberger will be talking about approaches to teaching spelling, with Spelling Shed founder Rob Smith at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, and this looks like essential listening for anyone with an interest in literacy teaching. Alternatively, you can catch Emily Edwards talking to head teacher Sam Strickland about leadership at 9 p.m. on Tuesday. As always, you can listen to anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org, and if you have something you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less to familiar Talk educational Radio. settings.
0: Full details can be found
1: on our website t-radio. www.ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you
0: next time. That's all on from Teachers me for this Talk month. Radio.
1: So. Thank you for listening. I wish you a successful run towards the Easter holiday and we will speak again in March.